Welcome to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. We are now in the sermon series of Ezekiel, which is the story of a leader called to deal with catastrophe. When Israel was invaded by Babylon, Ezekiel found himself in exile, living among his displaced people who refused to see what was right before their eyes. God reveals his purposes in some of the most wild and unforgettable images in the Bible. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org. We are located off C-470 in Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the voice of the Lord. I will make breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, and say to it, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life, and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Ezekiel cried them dry bones, Ezekiel cried them dry bones, Ezekiel cried them dry bones. Now hear the word of the Lord. You know this, right? Them bones, them bones, gonna walk around. Them bones, them bones, gonna walk around. Them bones, them bones, gonna walk around. Now hear the word of the Lord. One more, you know it? Them bones, them bones, gonna rise again. Them bones, them bones, gonna rise again. Them bones, them bones, gonna rise again. Now hear the word of the Lord. This is probably the best known passage in the book of Ezekiel. It's also one of the most strange passages in the Bible. Uh, But it is It's just an amazing, magnificent, magisterial text. It's, I get to make up the preaching schedule. I made sure I get to preach this passage. (laughs) (laughs) I don't do that too often, but I did it this time. Um, We are going to, uh, we're going to take a look at this text more closely kind of draw out of it three lessons and a few applications. Um, but let's, uh, let's start 
by, by just giving some context and, and some, some background to the text. You remember Ezekiel? He is a priest who has been called to be a prophet. Uh, on his 30th birthday, he finds himself sitting on an irrigation canal in a place called Babylon. Even though he was to be a priest in Israel, Israel has been attacked by the nation Babylon and they have taken people into exile. And Ezekiel is one of those in exile. So he's a refugee. At that moment, God calls him, gives him this vision of the, this, the glory of God. And it's this strange vision because the glory of God is supposed to be Jerusalem, but he's seen it in Babylon. Something's bad is happening in Israel. Remember what's happened to Israel. They have fallen into idolatry and uh, practicing injustice. They are now experiencing God's judgment. Babylon has invaded. They've taken thousands of people to, into exile. They've killed thousands of people in Israel and in Jerusalem. In chapter 33, if you remember last week, there is a man who shows up uh, to talk with Ezekiel, and, and he has come from Babylon, and he has news for Ezekiel that the Babylonians have attacked again, only this time they have completely sacked the city, destroyed it. And not only have they destroyed the city, but they have destroyed the temple. Now, the Jews thought the temple would never be destroyed because that was the place where God dwelt. God would never allow his place to be destroyed, but it has been. So at this moment in time, Israel is in despair. They have lost their king, they have lost their land, they have lost their temple, and they are spiritually dead. The situation is absolutely hopeless. In chapter 36, though, Ezekiel begins Remember, he is a prophet who's called to give prophecies of judgment, but he's also called to give prophecies of hope. And in chapter 36, he begins to, to give a prophecy of hope. He, he begins to tell Israel that the day is going to come when God is going to restore them back to their land, uh, bring them uh, back into his presence, uh, renew them from the inside. And it's this amazing vision. I mean, this complete restoration. It's kind of the gospel of, of Ezekiel. If you want to know what restoration looks like, go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Because Israel's restored nationally and economically and agriculturally and religiously. Their judicial system is remade. Spiritually, they come alive. They are given new hearts. I mean, it's just this amazing picture. But at the end of chapter 36, the question you're asking is, is this really going to happen? I mean, come on. Is God really going to do this? And that's when we get the vision. So let's look at the text, chapter 37, verses 1 through 2. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and he set me in the middle of a valley. And, and this is a, 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 like a huge plain in between mountains. This huge valley, this fat, flat plain in a sense. And it was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. Bones that were very, very dry. Now remember, Ezekiel is a priest, right? And as a priest, if he touches a corpse... 
he is going to be defiled. Uh, that would include bones. So if he touches any of these bones, he's defiled. So he's gingerly stepping between the bones, but God wants to make sure that he sees all of them. So God leads him back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Now, three things to note about the bones. First, there's a whole bunch of them. I mean, this whole valley is covered with bones, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of bones. This is, this is a scene of incredible destruction and devastation. It's this, this scene of utter despair. Second, the, the bones are dry. There is not an ounce of life left in them. The corpses had been thrown out, the vultures had come, the wild animals, wild animals had scavenged, everything has been picked off the bones. They're just bleached white by the sun, they're dry. It adds to the desperation. The other thing you want to note is that uh, these bones tell us that those corpses had never been buried. Evidently, at the end of a large battle, these corpses have just been put out and left to rot. And the animals came and ate away the flesh. Now, in the ancient Near East, it was not uncommon for corpses to be left to rot. But for Ezekiel, this was highly offensive. Because he, as a priest, knew how important it was to treat the human body even once it had died. You treated it with respect. You made sure that it was buried. Just to be thrown out and left unburied was the ultimate humiliation, the final degradation. In the ancient Near East, they, they would leave the bodies to rot sometimes if the battle was with someone who had broken a treaty who had violated a covenant. The fact that these bones aren't buried tells us that uh, whoever these people were, they're under the judgment of God. Uh, these people had violated the agreement that they had made with the Almighty. Uh, you see this in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Remember, Israel had made this, this covenant with God where they said that uh, he would be their God and he, they would be his people and they would serve no other gods. They wouldn't get involved in idolatry and they'd be obedient. They'd follow his regulation and follow his laws and, and live as his people, as this light to the nations. But Israel ha has disobeyed. They haven't followed through. And in Deuteronomy 28, the covenant is laid out, but you find out what the consequences are for the people and the nation that violate the covenant. And we read here, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction, but flee from them in seven, and you will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms on earth. Your carcasses will be food for all the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. These bones are under the judgment of God. Now, God asks Ezekiel in verse 3 a strange question. He asked me, son of man, can, can these bones live? <laughs> that is an absolutely ridiculous question. I, I mean, I know and you know what Ezekiel wants to say. <laughs> Not a chance. <laughs> I mean, look, 
Ezekiel understood that resurrection uh, was part of the story of the prophets. There had been people who had been raised from the dead. But even in those stories from the prophets, those were people who were simply, well, they were resuscitated. This wasn't uh, the resurrection of dead bones. It was just a, a person coming back to life. This, this is something wholly other. But what is Ezekiel supposed to say? I mean, he knows God is the God of life and death. And he certainly doesn't want to say to God, I don't think you can do it. <laughs> really, I'm not so sure. But in his head, he knows it's possible. But with his heart, he's not sure it's probable. So what do you say? Ezekiel comes up with this brilliant answer, right? He says, sovereign Lord, you alone know. <laughs> That's political correct. Correctness at its heart. I mean, he just throws the ball back to God and said, you tell me. <laughs> so God says, okay. And he turns around and he gives Ezekiel a strange assignment. Verse four. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones. Now, this, this word prophesy, uh, we, we think of prophecy as a foretelling of what is going to happen. But in the Bible, prophecy is really not so much a foretelling as a forthtelling. It's a, it's a proclamation of God's truth, of God's reality. So in a sense, what God is saying, hey, hey, hey Ezekiel, I want you to preach to the bones. And Ezekiel saying, you've got to be kidding. I mean, I've, I've had some rough audiences. I've talked to people with hard hearts, uh, <laughs> stiff necks. But I don't typically preach to the dead. <laughs> and God says, well, I want you to preach and I want you to say, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life and I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put my breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel's thinking, wait, I know ears have lots of bones, but I don't think bones have many ears. But if you want me, to prophesy, I will prophesy, I will preach. This is the hardest preaching assignment Ezekiel's ever been given to the worst audience he's ever stood in front of. But he preaches, look at verse seven. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I was prophesying there was a noise, a rattling sound and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them. <laughs> now, you you kind of picture this, right? E e Ezekiel stands up and he's feeling pretty stupid because he's preaching to a bunch of dead bones and he's looking around to make sure nobody sees. But he begins to preach. And, and it's amazing. He begins to preach and the bones, they begin to tremble. Keeps preaching. And then the bones begin to move. He keeps preaching and suddenly they're, they're coming together and suddenly they're, they're, there's this commotion and bones are flying everywhere past his nose, past his face and there's dust and he keeps preaching. I mean, this is pretty good. This, he thinks I'm doing a pretty good job. <laughs> this is the worst audience I've ever had but it's the best sermon I've ever given. 
and the most effective. I mean, things just happen and suddenly there is flesh, muscle on the bones. They have come together and tendons and skin. And Ezekiel's pretty proud of himself. (laughs) I would be. (laughs) And then suddenly it stops. There's no longer bones. Now there's just corpses. But notice what the text says. There was no breath in them. They're still dead. I mean, pretty soon the vultures are going to be circling, coming back for seconds. And the wild animals are going to be lining up to feast again. They're, they, they, they look good, but there's nothing going on inside. There's no breath in them. Preaching isn't enough. So God tells Ezekiel, he has to do a little more. He then said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain. The first hint that these are a slain army of Israel. Preach to these slain that they may live. So now, Ezekiel's not preaching to the the bones or the corpses. He's he's preaching to the wind. And he's telling the wind to come. And suddenly, it begins to blow from the four corners of the earth because the Spirit of God is the operative power in in all of the earth. That wind begins to to blow. It begins to come and it begins to, to... to breathe into those dead bodies <laughs> and they come alive and they stand up. This vast army. And the question is, what is going on here? I mean, what's the point? Well, God explains a little bit. Verse 11. He says, then he said to me, son of man, these bones, they're the people of Israel. In other words, this is an allegory or a metaphor and the bones represent uh, uh, Israel in in both a kind of a, a literal way and a figurative way. Literally, these are the dead that the Babylonians have killed. These are the armies that have been destroyed and corpses have been thrown out. That, that is Israel. But it also pictures that these are the people uh, who are spiritually dead. Because now, notice, he says, they say, these are the people in exile who, who are without hope. And they give this lament, and this is kind of a poetic phase, uh, phrase. He says, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. And this word for cut off means that they are under the curse, under the curse because they violated the covenant. They're despairing. They're without hope. They are dead. 
And then God explains, and he switches up the metaphor a little bit. He says there, prophesy to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I'm going to open your graves, they're no longer bones, but now they're graves, and bring you up from them. Because being in exile like was, was like being enclosed in a grave where you were lifeless. And he says, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from there and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and I bring you up from them. This is a salvation oracle, a salvation prophecy. It is God's word to the people who are in despair and without hope. And he's saying to them, hey, I'm going to bring you back. Literally, I'm going to, the day is going to come when I am going to bring you back to the land and restore your nation and restore the temple and restore your worship and restore everything that takes place in your land. But even more than that, I'm going to, I'm going to bring you back spiritually. I'm going to eventually put my spirit in you. And Ezekiel 36 tells us he's going to give them a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh, so that they may obey the word of the Lord. But there's something deeper going on here. You know, folks, this is what you could label an archetypal story. In other words, it's a story or vision that lays down a pattern of what God does and how God operates with people who are hopeless. This is, this is a, a, a picture of what God does and how he does it and why he does it when life is utterly ruined. It's this archetype. And we need to pay attention because there will be those moments in our life we find ourselves in that place where we've come to the end of our resources and we've come to the end of our ability and we've come to the end of our rope and we don't know what to do other than to simply throw ourselves on the mercy of God. It's those moments we want to remember this story. And I say it's an archetype because if you go into the scriptures, you begin to see that this story of God bringing life out of death is repeated again and again and again and again and again. Go all the way back to the creation story, uh, Genesis chapter 2, right? God takes dead dirt and forms it into this corpse. Adam, human. And what's he do? He breathes. And suddenly, that dead corpse, Adam, comes alive. You see it in the Exodus, right? Israel's taken into the realm of death with the king of death, Pharaoh. And they're without hope and they're in utter despair. But what does God do? He brings them out of the place of death into the land of promise. In a sense, giving them new life. You see it in the exile with Israel Assyrian and Babylon take the people of God into exile. They're despairing and they're hopeless. But what does God promise? He is the one who brings life out of death. He eventually brings them back and reestablishes them in the land. You, you see it with Jesus, right? Jesus is like Israel in the exiles under judgment. 
because of the, our sin. And what happens because he's under judgment, he dies, he dies in our place. And, and when he's dead, there is this moment where things seem hopeless. But what does God do? <laughs> he brings resurrection because he's God who brings life out of death. It is what happens to us, right? We, we were dead in our trespasses and our sin. We were under the judgment of God. But what does God do? He breathes his spirit into us. And we become what? New creatures. We're brought to life. We are, we are as John says, born again. It happens to us actually physically. We live in the realm of death with those who are dying and we ourselves are dying and someday we're going to be dead and at that moment it's going to see hopeless and it'll be lifeless. But what do we believe? We believe that the day will come when the God who brings life out of death brings us out of death to life. Not only do you see the pattern in God's people, but you see it in his creation. We live in the realm of death and the time will come when this realm experiences God's judgment and it'll seem for the moment hopeless, but what is God going to do with the universe and all of creation? The time will come when he restores it, he renews it, and the, the renewed creation come, comes. New heavens, new earth. Do you see the pattern? You gotta see the pattern. Because you wanna know it when you hit those moments when life has very little hope. Now there are three lessons I think we wanna learn from this vision. The first is that God brings life out of death. That's what he does. Israel experiences death because of their own sin, their own choices, their idolatry and their injustice. And thus they bring upon themselves the, the judgment of God. And they're hopeless. Folks, there, there are times in our lives where we will be exactly where, where they are. Because we live in the realm, right, that has fallen, the realm of death. And sometimes, either because of our own sin or the sins of others, or just because we live in, in the realm of death, this fallen world, we will experience those moments where it's hopeless and we're in absolute despair. And we don't know what to do. When I came back from my sabbatical, I shared with you that my wife and I have been walking through one of those moments in life. She had a knee, uh, hip replacement and got infected and had to take it through out because the bacteria ate through her pelvis and they had to give her antibiotics, which she reacted to terribly. I mean, this incredible life-encompassing reaction, uh, neuropathy and pain and... 
It was one of those moments that was despairing and hopeless and we didn't know what to do and we were at the end of our rope and uh, there's, uh, there was no solution, no human solution that seemed to work. I, I, I tried to share some of the lessons I've learned from that and uh, one of the things I said that I had learned was the statement that God's love protects us from nothing but sustains us in all things. And when I said that, I know some people have struggled with that. So I, I want to come back to, I want to hone that just a little bit. M- maybe make it a little more understandable to you. I, I want to change a word. God's love doesn't exempt us from anything. But sustains us in all things. Folks, we don't get a pass on the hardness of life. We don't get to opt out of its suffering. We don't get to bypass the consequences of sin in our world. I know we like to think we do because God loves us and all, but that's not what the gospel promises us. It doesn't promise us an exemption. Uh, to be honest, look, non-Christians die at the same rate as Christians. Statistics are pretty good about that. Uh, but Christians get cancer at the same rate as non-Christians. Christians are in car accidents at the same rate as non-Christians. Christians go through tragedy at the same rate as non-Christians. Christians suffer violence from others at the same rate non-Christians do. I mean, we, I don't know why we think we get a pass. We don't get a pass. We're not exempt. That's not what the gospel promises. What the gospel promises is, is that when that happens, God is there. That he will sustain us. That he, at some point in some way, will redeem even the hardness of life. May not happen when we want it to. May not happen how we want it to. But it will happen. That's the promise of the gospel. Why? Because he is the God who brings life out of death. Folks, there is no sin so great. There is no situation so drastic. There's no circumstance so overwhelming. There there is no destruction so complete. There, there There is no discipline so severe, no judgment so final that the hand of God cannot reach down and redeem. Because he is the God who brings life out of death. But the question is, do you believe it? You know, we have our formal theology that tells us, hey, we believe that God raises the dead. We believe in the resurrection. But then we have our functional theology that goes out and lives like we don't believe it at all. Do you believe it? Let me ask you the question. Can these bones live? God brings life out of death. Second lesson, when God brings life out of death, he uses his people, his word, 
and his spirit. Let's look at that a little more closely. I mean, it's easy to, to, to not notice that God in his sovereignty chooses to use Ezekiel in bringing the bones to life, right? He, he gets privileged with, with, with participation. Now, do you, do you think God needed Ezekiel? <laughs> do you think God couldn't have done it on his own? No, he, he chooses, he says, hey, hey Zeke, I, I have a great opportunity. I want to use you to do something that's going to be just amazing. I'm going to use you to help the kingdom come. You're going to be my hands and feet. In this case, you're going to be my voice. And all I want you to do is preach. Can you imagine if Ezekiel said, well, Lord, today's a little busy. How about tomorrow? Sometimes what we say, right? I know I'm supposed to be involved in this kingdom stuff and this, it's this great privilege, but man, life is full. I've got all kinds of stuff going on. I've got this career thing and I've got this family thing and I'm trying to make a, a, a little bit of money to survive and a little bit of money to put away. And I'm, I mean, Lord, life's just busy. The day will come when I have more time, I, I can get involved in this kingdom stuff, but not now. Not now. Later. Don't you, don't you understand I want to make bones live? Don't you understand I want to make the wind blow? Don't you understand I want to make the kingdom come? And I want you to be part of it? I know you're busy. Really. Really, I know you're busy. He uses his people. But... He only uses them if they're obedient. And sometimes being obedient is hard. I mean, really, can you understand how stupid Ezekiel felt preaching to bones? <laughs> Man, I don't want to be doing this. Really? Talking to dead bones? But, but, but if he takes the risk, if he speaks up, if he lets the Spirit use him, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's the best day of his life. Best sermon he's ever given. The most impact, it's, it's one of those, it goes down in the all time greats. And he didn't miss out because he spoke up and was willing to take the risk to proclaim the voice of God. I wonder how often we miss out. So God uses people and he uses his word. Now, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Why did Ezekiel have to preach? You know, prophesy, forth tell. Why? I'll tell you why, because there is this transformational power in the word of God. See, the problem is when we think of the word of God, we, we think of the Bible and we think that it's just, uh, well, it's just the Bible, it's just words on a page. 
Uh, it's nice that they're true, but it's just words on a page. But you, you see, his word is not simply words on a page. His word is his voice, and God's, God's voice shapes reality. We oftentimes think of God's word as simply being descriptive, descriptive of the reality that he has made and that he has created. And it is descriptive, but folks, the word of God is more than that. It is more than simply descriptive propositions about what is. The word of God is prescriptive. In other words, it speaks forth what God wants things to be. It has this creative energy in it that, that shapes the nature of reality. Ezekiel preaches and things begin to happen because it's the voice of God. He preaches and the bones change. Folks, when we listen to the voice of God, things change. Things happen in us. Because the word of God is powerful. Luther said that the word of God is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It grabs a hold of me. Oh man, he's right. You open up your life and your heart and your mind to the scriptures and you will never be the same because it is the voice of God that begins to mess with you. So when God brings life out of death, he uses his people and he uses his word and he uses his spirit. Uh, the word for spirit is the Hebrew word ruach, and, and it's used 10 times in this passage. Sometimes it is translated as breath, sometimes as spirit, sometimes as wind. I, I love this Hebrew word because it, the way it's pronounced encapsulates what it is. It's ruach. <laughs> it's great. Breath, ruach. It is the operational force the operational life that makes what God wants happen. He is the, the power that operates, right? He's from the four corners of the earth because he is the spirit that gives uh, operating life and energy to all creation is the breath. He is what has given us life. Do you remember in the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, C.S. Lewis's story? It's this extended allegory. And in there, you meet Aslan, who is the Christ figure, and he is this huge lion, right? And, and there's four kids who have ventured into Narnia, and you learn that a witch, the evil one, has taken over Narnia, and she's cast it under its spell, and everything has turned to cold and snow and ice. And one of the things she does is, is she turns people to stone. Death. Near the end of the story, Aslan and his rebels are attacking the fortress, the, the, the castle of the queen, and they break through the gates, and inside... In the courtyard are all these stone statues that, that, that the witch 
All these creatures that the witch has turned to stone and the kids. And you wonder, how is Aslan going to bring them back to life? What's he going to do? And if you've read the story, you know what happens. This lion, this regal lion walks up and he, he bends down his head and he breathes on them. It's a ruah. And stone ripples into flesh. And the creatures breathe in and they come alive. And what do they begin to do? They begin to dance and they begin to praise Aslan, the one who has given them life. That's C.S. Lewis's way of describing regeneration, spiritual life coming in us. That's what's happened to us. That's why John says that we must be born again. The spirit, the ruach, must breathe into us. Because nothing happens in the kingdom without the Spirit of God. Nothing happens in the kingdom without the Spirit of God. Now, folks, you know, we can look good on the outside. We can look like we have it all together, that we've got this Christian living thing down, you know, <laughs> that we've figured it out, that this uh, relationship with God is vibrant and real, and we're just, we got all our I's dotted on all our T's crossed, and we're just cruising, and it all makes sense. But none of that matters if there's no breath inside. If the wind's not blowing in our lives, all we are is simply dead people walking. Going through the motions. Is the wind of God blowing in our lives? Is his spirit inside of us changing things? You know, you can walk in a church and you can be really impressed. I mean, gosh, you look around and there's all this activity and all these great programs and all this amazing stuff. And you look at the church and even if they don't have amazing stuff, they're going to get amazing stuff. And it's just, oh man, you're so impressed. And sometimes that's what happens in church and in ministries. We think, you know, we're going to make the kingdom come. <laughs> with all our technology and our, all our, our work and all our human ingenuity and all our, our, our creativity. Uh, um, you know, with all these great things we're doing, all our strategic planning and all our great execution, we're, we're gonna make the kingdom come. But folks, if the wind of God is not blowing, the kingdom's not coming. No matter how great a ministry looks, on the outside, no matter how much good stuff and great programs and, and incredible activities, if the wind of God is not in the midst of it, it's simply dressed up dead bones. And that's the crazy thing, isn't it? Because when the wind of God blows, it's not all orderly. <laughs> 
when the wind of God blows, man, it gets a little confusing, a little chaotic, and a little dust is raised, and bones are flying everywhere. I think God likes a little chaos, a little unpredictability. You know, some stuff that makes us scratch our head and go, what the heck? We always like to be in control. Have things kind of locked up and buttoned down. (laughs) And I don't think God really is that concerned with things being locked up and buttoned down. (laughs) Now here's the thing. The spirit, the one who breathes life, that spirit, the one who brings life out of death, that's that spirit, that spirit lives in us. The same spirit. So how do we get the wind to blow in our lives? Well, the first thing you have to understand is you cannot control the wind. That's what Jesus says, right? He says the wind blows where the wind wants to go. (laughs) If you think you're going to make it go where you want, good luck. It blows where it wants to blow. So what that means is we have to become receptive. I mean, it's kind of like, how do you get sleep to come? You ever, ever think about that? Do you, you just command yourself, I'm going to sleep. Does that work well? Usually the harder you try, <laughs> the less it happens, right? Unless you have narcolepsy, then it happens when you don't want it to. What do you do? Man, you become receptive. When I, when I want to sleep, you know what I do? I go into my bedroom. I lay down on my right side. I turn out all the lights. I turn on the fan. I make sure all the blinds are closed. I make sure the TV is off. And it's dark. And I tell Barb, be quiet. <laughs> and I close my eyes. And I wait. can't control the spirit it's going to come but you can become receptive you can pray you can ask you can desire you can open your heart you can open your mind you can prophesy to the wind breath breathe on me I want you I think the spirit wants to blow more in our lives than maybe we want him to maybe So when God brings life out of death, he uses his people, his word, and his spirit. And he does it to make himself known. Does it to make himself known? (laughs) I want you to get this. God doesn't bring life out of death simply for our benefit doesn't do it simply for us. You know why? Because life is not about us. It's about him. So he acts for his glory, not ours. Chapter 36 is really interesting. Um, well, hold on. 
in this chapter, chapter 37, three times, the Lord says, I'm going to do this so you that know that I'm the Lord. Verse 6, verse 13, verse 14. I'm going to bring these bones to life so that you know I am the Lord. Why does he have to help them know he's the Lord? I'll go back to chapter 36. God is bringing this massive restoration to Israel, right? And in that chapter, he says them very explicitly, I am not doing this for your benefit. In fact, I am doing this for me. And the reason I have to do it is because you guys have profaned my name. What's he mean? You see, the world was watching Israel. And when God's judgment comes on Israel and he allows the Babylonians to attack and destroy and sack Jerusalem and destroy his temple, you know what the nations think? What a puny God they serve. What an impotent God. Can't even protect his own people. Because they were under his discipline and the world looked on. Isn't it a scary thing to realize that God's reputation is on the line and is measured by how we live? And people watch us. And as they watch how we live, they make conclusions about the God we serve. And Ezekiel says, no, 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 you guys, you've profaned the name of God. You've taken God's name and you dragged it through the mud and the nations around think less of him because of you. So God says, I'm not gonna have this. I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna bring you back. I'm gonna restore your nation. I'm gonna bring back the kingship. I'm gonna bring back the temple. I'm gonna restore your economy. I'm gonna do something. They just don't know the whole story. But once they understand the whole story, they will know that I am the Lord. They will know. They will know that I am Lord. God is all about making his name great. Now, he may use us in the process. We may get to participate. We may become mediators of his spirit, but don't think for a moment the glory is ours. Ezekiel, I know you felt pretty good about preaching the dead bones that came alive, but don't get a big head. It's never about you. It's always about God and his name and him being known. And what's interesting about God being known is this notion of being known implies relationship. So when God's name is known, not only is his name honored, uh, but we are revived, right? We, we have a new recognition of who God is and a renewal of that relationship. So God brings life out of death, and when he does, he uses his people, his word, and his spirit, and he does so to make himself known. Final two thoughts. Number one, God still cares about dry bones K 
cares about spiritually dead people. I don't know where you are this morning, but if you look inside and you don't see the wind, if it's the breath of God is not there, invite him in. He wants to breathe into your life. He wants to fill you up. And he wants us to speak his voice to spiritually dead people because he still cares about dry bones. And two, dry bones can still have hope. I mean, let's be honest, folks. If, uh, if we serve the God who brings life out of death, I mean, if, if we serve the God who can take dry, dead bones and put flesh and tendons and skin on them and breathe into them so that they live, if, if that's the kind of God we serve, then what problem is it in your life that is beyond the reach and the hand and the power of that God? Help me understand what, what, what was so, what was, what was so unsolvable? Really? <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. You don't think God can handle that? Folks, we serve the God of resurrection. The God who brings life out of death. Probably many of you have heard of Christopher Hutchins. Hitchens, sorry. Christopher Hitchens was part of the New Atheists, wrote a bunch attacking Christianity, would do debates with Christian philosophers and thinkers and writers over Christianity. His publisher actually contacted a man named Larry Totten, who is a Christian author, and asked him to help set up these debates. And over the course of time, uh, uh, course of years, Hitchens and Totten developed this kind of unlikely friendship. Um, Hitchens actually stayed in Totten's home. And Hitchens died of cancer, but prior to his death of cancer, the two friends would take long road trips across America. And they talk. <laughs> Here's how Totten describes what happened on one of those trips. He says, my mind goes back to the Shenandoah. The skies are clear, the autumn leaves are translucent in the early afternoon sun, and the road ahead of us is open. In a strong, clear voice, Christopher is reading from the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. Reaching the 25th and 26th verses, his face lights up with recognition. He reads, Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Christopher uh, stops. He says, I, I know this one. He says, I, I, I did not recall its connection with the resurrection of Lazarus. Ah, it's a great verse, I add, sensing we have reached a defining moment. Yes, it is, Christopher says. And then taking his reading glasses off, he, he turns to me and he asks, do you believest thou this Larry Totten? His sarcasm is evident, but it lacks its customary force. I do, but you already knew that I did. 
the question is, do you believest thou this Christopher Hitchens? As if searching for a clever reply, he hesitates and he speaks with unexpected transparency. All admit that it is not without appeal to a dying man. Folks, the God who brings life out of death is not without his appeal to a dying man and a dying world. My prayer is that there might be a rattling of bones among us, that the wind might blow in our lives and in our church. Would you stand? I'm going to close our service with a short liturgy and then sing and worship. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.